Our text this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So if you'll open your Bibles and turn there with me, we'll read it in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles available throughout the worship center on the beams, and you're welcome to pick one of those up. If you don't have a Bible uh, that is yours, you're welcome. uh, We would love to give you a Bible, and we always have those available at our uh, book nook and at the information desk. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, a race is an excellent metaphor for the Christian life and for at least three reasons. Difficulty, difficulty, and reward. Now, there are some pretty fantastical races that people have thought up in modern times. Some are very, very long. The Barkley Marathon is a 100-mile marathon in Tennessee. The trail has not been maintained for over 50 years, so it's treacherous. And since that race began in 1986, only nine runners out of about 700 who have done the course have finished within the 60-hour cutoff. It's a long race. Some races are very cold. The Siberian Ice Marathon is the coldest race in the world and takes place each January in Omsk, Russia. In the 2001 race, temperatures reached as far as 39 degrees below zero. That is a cold race. Some races are very hot. What is known as the toughest race on earth is held in the southern Moroccan desert. It's a six-day, 156-mile run. Some races involve animals. The man versus horse marathon in Wales, for example. The event started in 1980 when a local landlord, Gordon Green, overheard a discussion between two men in his pub. One man suggested that over a significant distance across country, that man was equal to any horse. So Green decided that the challenge should be tested in full public view and organized the race, and it's been going on ever since. And twice since, uh, a man has beat the horse. So it can happen. And there's some involving food. There's uh, two that I came across, uh, both two and a half miles long. And when you get to the end, you've got to eat a whole dozen Krispy Kremes. That's the Krispy Kreme challenge. Uh, there's, I think, Pizza Hut or Domino's has one where you have to eat three pieces of pizza at the end of the race. So there are some silly races as well. Well, some races require more and less training, and some races require more and less pain. In each of these cases, the cost-benefit ratio, it seems to me, is way, way off, at least for me. There is either plenty more risk than reward, or maybe there's little risk, but I just don't care about the outcome, and I don't see all of you participating in these races or even curious as to where to sign up for the Krispy Kreme challenge. Just go buy some Krispy Kremes. But there is one race that is especially hard and especially important. 
It involves every aspect of our lives. It can cost us everything. And while it may appear to be silliness to the watching world, it is more than worth it. It is the race that is set before every Christian, the great race of the Christian life. It is the race to believe God's word and to keep believing God's word, to hold fast to his promises and not to let go. Well, the book of Hebrews is a letter, but it's not like most New Testament letters. It really is a sermon. And I may just refer to it as the sermon of Hebrews from time to time in this sermon. Just two chapters before this morning's text in chapter 10, we get a glimpse into the context of what these readers had been going through. And perhaps more, well, yes, more of what they should expect to face. Hebrews 10, 32 and following, we read, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Clearly, the Christian life in the Bible is not presented to us as an afternoon under the hot sun on a beach on vacation. It is rather a marathon, a long and challenging foot race. Becoming a Christian is not so much like entering a room so that when you're in, you're in, you can stand and sit or move about if you like. It is more like entering a marathon, a race, becoming a runner, and so we run. It's athletic imagery. When God makes a Christian, he makes a runner. He makes a believer. And as runners run, so believers believe. It's how Paul spoke of his own life, reflecting on his life near his death in 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The race of the Christian life is the great race of faith. And our two verses for this morning come from a high point in the sermon. After 10 chapters, 10 chapters of rich doctrine of Christ, his person and his work. And then after chapter 11, a survey through redemptive history and the stories of faith on those characters in our Old Testament. Now in chapter 12, the author cashes all of that in on a mighty and majestic and marvelous exhortation and a call to run the race of the Christian faith with endurance. Or as he said several times already, hold fast, hold fast your confession. In other words, keep on believing in Jesus. And as we will see, the race set before us, before you and me, is difficult. But the race set before us is doable by the grace of God and with his help. And it is worth it. So how can we run the race with endurance? That's the question. We're called to run the race with endurance. Well, how can we run the race with endurance? We need God's help, that's for sure. And praise God, God is a God who offers sinners help. Hebrews 2.18, for because he himself, Jesus, suffered when tempted, Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted. In Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So God is about helping us to endure. And he uses means, certain means, for extending his help. And just like a coach, the author of Hebrews in this letter is telling us to do some things in order that we might run the race with endurance. And he tells us to do three things. First, in order to run the race set before us with endurance, we must run with the cloud. We must run with the cloud It's kind of a play on words. You've heard the line, run with the crowd. Well, I'm saying from Scripture, run with the cloud. Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The writer here is saying that we can run the race set before us with endurance because we're surrounded by a great cloud. Well, what is this cloud? It's a cloud of witnesses. Well, what is that? It's not so obvious. We might be tempted to say this is a cloud of our Christian friends or our church, and that wouldn't be a terrible guess. After all, uh, they're watching us, they're witnessing our life, and in Hebrews 10, 24, we're told to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. But all we have to do is turn back one chapter to Hebrews 11, So go ahead and turn there, Hebrews chapter 11. All we have to do is turn back one chapter to see that the people that he is talking about that make up this great cloud are long dead. Hebrews 11 is a famous chapter in scripture, one of the more familiar, no doubt. And we'll spend our time here in the first point in this chapter. Well, what is this cloud? Listen to how chapter 11 begins. Hebrews 11, 1 through 2, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. And from here, we are on a roller coaster through the New Test- Old Testament, whizzing by events and people, uh, getting a tour of faith, an account of the faithfulness and the faith acts of those believers in the Old Testament. It, chapter 11 is like a bullet point list of one and sometimes two sentence accounts of the lives of some six, seventeen characters with reference to numerous, numerous others, though not by name. All of them together, a cloud of witnesses that surround us. And witnesses to what? Are they witnesses to us? Well, yes, it's possible that this imagery is to call to mind the, the imagery of a coliseum where we would be surrounded with onlookers watching us run and cheering us on. But more than witnesses to us, these are witnesses to God testifying to us, cheering us on and encouraging us with the testimony of God's faithfulness. Witnesses to God who are testifying to us that God is faithful on the basis of their experience of having run the very same race that we are running ourselves and having finished it. So pick your sport, baseball, basketball, tennis if that's your thing. You're playing the big game and the crowd is full of your heroes. That's the scene here. That's the picture. The place is packed out. The word cloud is meant to communicate that. It's a throng we might say. Uh, It's hopping It's packed out, a cloud, but not just a cloud. It's a great cloud. And it's not just a great cloud, but it's a great cloud that surrounds us. 
So several words here to get at just the multitude of witnesses to God's faithfulness. It's overwhelming. We're surrounded. It's one big cloud. And it's a heavy cloud, but it's not a dark cloud. It's a bright cloud, and it rains with the goodness and the faithfulness of God. So that's what the cloud is. It's a cloud of witnesses. But how does this cloud help us endure the race? How does it help us to endure the race? This cloud tells us what kind of race we're in. This is a race of faith. Running is believing. And this is clear from the verses that lead up to chapter 11 at the end of chapter 10. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We're of those who have faith and having faith preserve their souls. So it's clear from the verses leading up to chapter 11, this is a chapter about faith. And the race is a race about faith. It's also clear from the bookends of chapter 11. Hebrews 12, 11, 1 through 2. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And then at the very end of the chapter, verse 39, and all these, after recounting the catalog, uh, were commended through their faith. But we don't even need to do that. We all, we all, it only requires just a little bit of math in maybe reading and noticing a key word. The word faith shows up 26 times in this chapter of the book of Hebrews. The point is, is that the race we're called to in chapter 12 is a race of faith, a race to believe. The people of old lived in the present as if what they hoped for in the future was as certain as their experience in the present. As if what they could not see with their eyes, but which God was promising, was as sure as what was immediately in front of them that they were staring at. That is faith. We enter the Christian life by faith, and we live the Christian life believing every word of God. We start the race running, and we finish the race also by running. It's what true Christians do. We believe. And this life of, life of faith is part of what sets biblical Christianity apart from other religions. Ours is truly, in the Bible's presentation of our salvation, is truly an internal matter first. The Christian life, though concerned with behavior, is not at root really about behavior. It is first about what we are trusting in, who we are trusting, who we are loving, and what's going on inside of us. Whatever else we may do, Going to church, praying multiple times a day, acts of obedience, generosity, even leaving for the mission field. Whatever we, else we may do, without faith, is it, impo- it is impossible to please God. So this cloud tells us about the kind of race we're in, and it also tells us what this race requires, what it will cost us. Yes, faith is an internal reality, but it has fruit It grows things that are concrete that you can see, touch and feel and observe and record. Almost every time faith is mentioned in chapter 11, it is mentioned alongside an action of some man or woman on the account of their faith. If you've ever thought that believing was one thing and you were happy to believe, but obedience was something else, then this will confront that idea as wrong. They go together. It's a happy marriage. They eat at the same table, sleep in the same bed. Obeying is what believing does. Just look, Hebrews 11, verse 7. 
By faith, Noah, in reverent fear, constructed the ark. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed. He went out, not knowing where he was going, living in tents. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. Verse 24, by faith, Moses refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He left Egypt. He kept the Passover. Verse 29, by faith, the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea. And here in verse 32, he speeds up a bit, realizing uh, this could get out of hand and become a very long sermon. Uh, See, he decides to condense some things. And as he does, I'm going to read this. It gets kind of intense. It gets dense. But notice all of the action words. Notice all of the verbs. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, and they were sawn in two, and they were killed with the sword. They went out about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. In other words, Faith makes us do things. Faith makes us do things. And reading this should give the effect of a kind of adrenaline rush. You've all probably heard about what humans are capable of with an adrenaline rush. Do a little Googling around the internet and you'll find stories of men lifting up cars to save children. I found a story of a woman who flung Uh, picked up and flung a riding lawnmower to save her daughter. Another woman who wrestled and beat a polar bear to save her son, whom the polar bear was attacking. I don't think she killed him, but she beat him and he left. You can't beat polar bears unless you're having an adrenaline rush. An adrenaline rush, in medicine, they don't even recognize it as a thing, I guess, because you can't test it. So it's technically not provable, measurable, explainable, although they have explanations for it. An adrenaline rush will let you take full advantage of the muscles, I suppose, that are there. Now, we aren't given today to special instructions by God to go here and to do this specific thing, but we have his word And so, what is it that you are doing in your life that you are doing on account of faith? How is your life different because you believe the Bible? What things are you saying this week because you believe the Bible? What things are you not saying because you believe the Bible? What places have you gone? What people have you forgave? What time have you invested? What decisions have you made? Are there things that happen in your life that are explainable only by the reality of faith in the very word of God? Otherwise, they make no sense. Well, how does faith do this? How does faith move us so? Mere obligation? 
fear of punishment. Maybe it just makes us naive. We believe these things and so we do crazy. We, we, do, we do things that are crazy. No, although it's true. Uh, the cloud tells us what kind of race we're in. The cloud of witnesses tells us what this race requires. And the cloud of witnesses also tells us of reward in the race. It tells us of reward. Faith moves us to action because by faith we actually believe God's word. We take him at his word when he makes a promise and we live like that promise is actually true. Why did Noah construct the ark? Because God told him that he was going to send a flood and he should build an ark to save himself and his family. He believed God's word. Why did Abraham leave his home for a foreign land and tents? Verse 9 of chapter 11, by faith he went out in the land of promise. He was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Why did he offer up Isaac? Isaac was his promised son. God had promised his children through this son would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. Now God tells him to offer him up as a sacrifice. In verse 19, we're told he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Why didn't Moses claim Egyptian status? This is a really good one. Listen to this. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Doesn't sound like a very good deal, does it? For he was looking forward to the reward. It's our faith in God's word and his promise of reward that pulls us through suffering, through trial, away from sin. How did Moses so boldly lead God's people out of Egypt? By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured how as seeking him who is invisible. And how did these many characters endure when they didn't see the promises? They greeted them from afar and acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly country. And what about those guys sawn in two? Verse 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. So how did these people of old do what they did? They believed the promises of God. That's how they did it. I like how one commentator put it. In the Old Testament times, there were many men and women who had nothing but the promises of God to rest upon without any visible evidence that these promises would ever be fulfilled. Yet so much did these promises mean to them that they regulated the whole course of their lives in their light. The promises related to the state of affairs belonging to the future. But these people acted as if that state of affairs were already present. So convinced were they that God could and would fulfill what he had promised. In other words, they were men and women of faith. They were men and women of faith, believing that promises of the future from God are as true as what is true right now. And though we should not be unthoughtful in looking to the Old Testament for examples, for there are many bad examples and even the good examples are not perfect examples. We are to look to these men and women of faith as examples. This is part of why we read the Old Testament. 
And even good examples are there for more than that. We should be clear on that. But these Old Testament people really are examples. That is not all we should do with them, and they are not our ultimate examples. But even as they are examples to us, they are not just examples of obedience. They are examples of men and women, as we watch them live, who heard God speak, who received his word, and clung to it, and it changed their life. They took him at his word, even to death. They are examples for us in seeking God and seeking his reward. You may be the only believer in your family. You may be the only believer in your workplace. Maybe you would go out from this congregation one day to a foreign land, and you may be the only believer in the city that you know of. My friends, you are not alone. You are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So fill your mind with the scriptures. Fill your mind with the stories of God's word, of the stories of these men and women of faith, so that when you read Hebrews chapter 11, it lands on you and it gives you a rush of adrenaline. It gives you a rush of adrenaline because you are shocked with the seriousness of what God has called to you by faith. You are stunned with the utter greatness and truthfulness and faithfulness of God so as to be able to obey at great cost, even the cost of your life, as these men and women were. Well, in order to run the race with endurance, we must run with the cloud. We must run surrounded, ever aware of the cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. And second, in order to run the race set before us with endurance, we must run light. We must run light. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run the race with endurance set before us. Let us, what, let us lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely because we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses and let us run the race with endurance. Noah had to let go of some hopes of having any friends outside his family. Think about that. He was judgmental. He was having to tell people why he was building an ark, and they wouldn't believe him. It was a crooked generation. He would have been taking his self-righteous. He would have been taking his wasting his time in a lot of wood. I mean, building this ark because the flood is going to come and take everyone away. Abraham had to let go of his dreams he had for life before his visit from God. Casting out, leaving his family, his homeland, all of his possessions. Moses had to let go of any worldly pleasures he might have enjoyed as an Egyptian in this life. This weekend, as I was, this week as I was preparing for the sermon, it occurred to me that I don't think, honestly, I've ever gone running. And by that I mean gone running to go running. Just to run, not to get somewhere. So we've all run to the bathroom, we've run to get somewhere, run out of patience with children. Christy and I uh, have a memory of running in uh, Cairo, Egypt, or Amsterdam, somewhere on the other side of the world on our way to get our daughter, number of connecting flights through different countries, a court date to get to, and our plane was late landing, and we had a very quick time to turn around between the time the next one would take off. And so we got off that plane and ran, and I had to leave her behind. 
Uh, because one of us had to get there to tell them uh, another one is coming. The plane was going to take off, and I wasn't, even, I wasn't going very fast. And then she whizzes by me on one of these carts, so somebody caught her. <laughs> and she got there first, and uh, I literally, I was almost ready to throw up. It was ridiculous. So I'm not a runner. Uh, I'm not a runner. And just in case you think I'm embellishing, I was thinking about this this week. I don't know that Christy knew my text yet. And I got in the car. She picked me up from here. We're going to go to lunch. And I said, babe, I think I'm going to go on a run. And half laughing and in all seriousness, she replies, do you even know how to do that? (laughs) And I thought, I'm going to write that down. So I started typing it and I said, well, babe, uh, uh, I'm preaching on Sunday on running. uh, And so I should at least try this out. And she replied, yes, you should. And you'll have some funny stories. And honestly, she wasn't trying to be funny. She was just being honest. So I don't speak about running from experience, but even though I don't know much about running, I know enough not to wear cargo pants with hammers in those loops and wrenches in the big pockets. If I was trying to run a long race with endurance, I would not carry along a box of books for reading or a shopping cart with some of my favorite things. If the race matters at all, those things stay back. They slow you down. They're heavy. There are weights. Uh, with biking, if you were to go into a bike shop to buy a water bottle cage, and a water bottle cage is you attach it to your bike and you put a water bottle in it, as you go in there and buy one of these, you think five bucks, sure. There are water bottle cages for five dollars. And there are water bottle cages for fifteen dollars. And then there is the eighty dollar water bottle cage. What is there an eighty dollar water bottle cage for? It's made of carbon, that's what. It's light. Who needs it? To whom is it worth $80? Somebody who wants to win a race. Someone who wants to go fast. Someone who wants to endure. So carbon water bottle cages are an illustration of this. Lay aside every weight. Shed the weight. Then there are things that cling to us, things that entangle us. If you're running a race, don't tie your shoelaces together. Tie them tight so that you don't get entangled in them. Don't wrap yourself in a sheet. You'll have a hard time running or a wild vine. Why would you do that? And yes, this is what sin does. It doesn't make any sense. It's silliness to try to run a race wrapped in a sheet. But that's like what trying to do the Christian life is while nurturing and enjoying our sin, isn't it? It's silliness. It's, it's stupidity. And it's who we are at heart as sinners. And it's all we would be but for his grace. So what is entangling you right now? What are you ensnared in? What's clinging to you? Do you need to lay aside the entangling sin of gossip or slander? This is an entangling one for sure. Bitterness or unforgiveness? The author addresses that. Hebrews 12, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Keeping peace is hard, but not if you really believe that. How about the ensnaring and entangling nature of sexual impurity? Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Sexual impurity is difficult. It is hard. Temptation is real. But not if you believe that and take God at his word. So what's entangling you? My friend, believe God's word. Confess your sin to him. Lay it aside and run the race with endurance. Run light, shorts and a t-shirt, that's it. And actually, that's not even true to context. In context, uh, runners would strip naked to run. 
And that's kind of what he's asking us to do here. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Here's what sin is and how it relates to faith. Sin is counterproductive if God's promises of reward are true and we believe them. Sin is a hindrance. Sin is a hindrance to what faith longs to lay hold of. Sin is a hindrance to what faith reaches to lay hold of. And this is how believing relates to obedience, how faith relates to repentance. If you believe you have much loved and honorable guests coming over for dinner and your table is a mess, you will clear off the table and prepare a meal. If your new Porsche is being delivered uh, at the end of the week and your garage is full of undone trash bags, you will throw them away. Why? Because you believe the Porsche is coming. You believe the guests are coming. Faith and obedience relate in this way. You will let go of sin when you see your sins as weights slowing you down. But instead, we tend to believe that advertisement on the box of sin, that these weights aren't really weighing anything. Actually, they're magical weights. Pick them up and you can go anywhere. Not true. Not true. All sin slows you down, hurts you. Moses exchanged the fleeting pleasures. Pleasures sin does offer, but they are fleeting for the reproach of Christ, for he looked forward to the reward. So why do we believe these lies? Hebrews 3.13 tells us that we can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You have a hard time feeling God. You're struggling in your fight against sin. You don't feel God anymore. Maybe it's that that sin has hardened your heart. You've ignored it, and as you've ignored it, your heart has grown cold and chilly toward the Lord. Confess your sin, lay it off, and run the race with endurance. Letting go of sin is not easy as just deciding to if you've ever wrestled with sin. It's not just as easy as recognizing it as sin and saying, well, I'm done with that. There I see it for what it is. You have to untangle yourself from it. It's entangling. It clings to you. You have to fix your thoughts. You have to unwind your feelings. You have to unline your desires. And that's what the Bible is for. Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. In other words, let us run the race with endurance so that none of you may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Here's the word comes in. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the Bible will tell you the truth about you, about sin, and about God. It's like a mirror. Don't read it, and it's like not looking in the mirror. That's what the Bible is for, and that's what Christian friends are for as well. Hebrews 3, 12. Listen to what we are, respons- listen to what we are responsible to one another for. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We have come, we can be confident we know him if we continue holding fast our confidence. When God makes a runner, the runner runs. The believer believes and doesn't stop. And Paul says this a different way, using athletic imagery in 1 Corinthians 9. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. I do not run aimlessly, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
Let us run the race with endurance. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So in order to run this race, the great race of the Christian life with endurance, we must run with the cloud and we must run light. And third, we must run with eyes on Jesus. We must run with eyes on Jesus. Let us run the race with endurance, the race set before us, Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is where, as we run, as we live, this is where our eyes are. This is where we look. Jesus is the quintessential example. He's like the climax of the list from Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 didn't tell us everything there is to know about the characters, but we know that while they were faithful, they were also littered with faithlessness throughout their lives and unbelief. Jesus believed God and his faith led him to the cross and it led him through the cross to exaltation. How did he do it? He looked forward to that exaltation, to his reward. The scripture says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. He took our sin. He was accused of all of our sin for us, for the joy that was set before him. And what was that joy? What was his reward? Certainly reunion with his father in glory. Certainly the purification of our sins and a people for himself and his exaltation at the Father's right hand, seated where he is now, ruling. And so when we are overwhelmed with the race set before us, consider the race and the reward that was set before Jesus. Hebrews 12, 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So are you weary or faint-hearted? Look at Jesus who for the joy set before him endured even the cross, despising its shame, our sin. Looking to Jesus means looking to Jesus as our ultimate example. But notice he didn't just say looking to Jesus. He said a number of things about Jesus. It also means looking to Jesus for all that he is for us. We look to him as our example, yes, but we also look to him for all that he is for us. We look to Jesus who became a man for us. We look to Jesus. That word, that name highlighting his humanity, which is a huge theme in in Hebrews. We're told that in 5-7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers with loud cries and tears. One of the most vivid insights into Jesus' humanity, probably the Garden of Gethsemane, loud cries and tears. We're told that he had to be made like his brother's in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. And what does this have to do with our endurance? Jesus' humanity and our endurance? Well, listen to Hebrews 4.15. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we, we, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So look to Jesus, the man, and look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the founder and perfecter of our faith. One thing that was missing from the faith of the Old Testament saints was perfection. 
Their faith wasn't perfected. The, the, the thing promised hadn't come, and neither was their faith even perfect in it. They didn't obey perfectly. They did not see the fulfillment of the things they longed for. Joseph says, at the end of his life, he made mention, Joseph made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, and he gave directions concerning his bones. Their faith and its object, what they were longing for, was not perfected. And that's why in chapter 11, we read this cloud of witnesses, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. But Jesus, Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the founder of our faith. That is, he's the author. Another translation might be the pioneer. He has gone before us. He has believed perfectly. And he's the originator of our faith. He's carved a path for us to follow in. He's walked this very road. He's the founder of our faith, and he's also the perfecter of our faith. He completes it. In part, it means he brings about the fulfillment of all that it looks forward to. The end of Hebrews 11 says this, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Something better. Something better. Jesus offers a better sacrifice, The new covenant he brings about is a covenant with better promises, the full forgiveness of sins. And the new covenant people is a better people, every one of us knowing the living God. There's a shift here that's taken place in the story of God's salvation. When Jesus comes, everything that the Old Testament saints were looking forward to is here and it's better. Everything they looked forward to then is ours now. And all of this faith is God's doing. His closing words, uh, the author prays that God would equip his readers for everything good that they may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. So God gets all the credit. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, and God is behind even our believing this morning and our faithfulness in believing. We know whom, to whom we should give the credit for this. And there is encouragement here for those of you who are wary in your faith, struggling to believe God's word amidst trial or temptation. We know where to look, not only in faith, looking at Jesus, but we know where to look for faith. That is to Jesus. I love this quote. Some of you seek for faith much in the same way as you would dig for a well. You turn the eye inward upon yourself and search amidst the depths of your polluted heart to find if faith is there. You search amid your feelings at sermons and sacraments to see if faith is there. And still you find nothing but sin and disappointment. Look full in the face of Jesus. Drink in his word. Faith comes by hearing the voice of Jesus. And the author of Hebrews agrees. Need to grow in your faith? Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And look to Jesus as well, our great high priest. Jesus, our great high priest who endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated, meaning he is done working to cover our sins. He has paid for our sins with his blood. His death was enough Your sins are covered. And part of what helps us in our endurance in this race is looking to Jesus, a great high priest who's taken care of all of our sins and is seated because he has done doing so. 
Since then, Hebrews says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. What? Let us hold fast our confession. Let us run the race with endurance. Let us keep believing. Let us live by faith because the God who is there did this for us and he keeps his promises. And Jesus believed him to and through the cross. And he declares righteous all those who believe in his word. Now, you may be asking why you would need a priest. What is all this about a great high priest? Why do I need, I, I like Jesus, but I've never considered that he's a priest. Haven't considered that I need one. Well, a priest is for an idea uh, to kind of contemporary life. We don't think about them, think about how we need them, but a priest mediates between two parties. We need a priest, we need a mediator between God and us because God is holy and we are not holy. And we need Jesus, the only possible priest to mediate between God and us because we need a go-between that can actually go between us and God. And as Jesus goes between us and God, dying for our sins, offering his righteous life, he can take us with him into the very presence of God so that as he is accepted before God, so we are accepted before God. Not guilty for our sin, Eve, anymore. He is our great high priest. Look to him and endure. And finally, look to Jesus, our great king. Look to Jesus, our great king. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is a priest who's also a king. A priest who dies for us and offers a sacrifice for us, who is also our king and the ruler of all things. And the author of Hebrews has had our eye on this priest king since the first verses of this book. After making purification for sins, Hebrews 1.3 says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this means that our suffering, our trials, are all under the sovereign rule of Jesus. John Newton wrote, Faith upholds a Christian under all trials by assuring him that every painful season is under the direction of his Lord, that chastisements are a token of his love, that the season, the measure, and the continuance of his sufferings are appointed by infinite wisdom and designed to work for his everlasting good and that grace and strength shall be afforded him according to his need. So there sure is comfort in Jesus' kingly rule that helps us to endure. And there's also a reminder of the reward. We've talked a lot about reward, but not specifically as to what it is. It is Jesus the king and the joy of his kingdom, if we were to say it in a sentence. The city that has foundations, whose designer and building is God. The better country and the heavenly one that the people of old looked forward to. The new creation where there will be no crying or tears, where we will be with God and God will be with us and we will be his people and all things will be right. And while they greeted it from afar, and while it's yet to come in full, it is already actually here. Listen to how the author encourages his readers in chapter 11, 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, 
And let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer God, to God, acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And that is the only right response. Reverence and awe and faith. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so as we look to Jesus, who for the joy set before him of his kingdom endured the cross, despising its shame, looking forward to that reward, so we can run our race of the great race of the Christian life with faith, with endurance, for the joy set before us of being with King Jesus in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your glorious word, all of it true. We thank you and praise you that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, bearing our sin and despising the shame of our sin, carrying it on him, becoming sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Father, we acknowledge that he is exalted right now, seated at your right hand and ruling. And we find great comfort in this and great encouragement. For he believed your word all the way through the cross to this seat. And we may believe your word and your promises as well through anything that we are going through. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.